You can pick out the people who were there were the ones with the still sunburned faces. Um, grand celebration. If that was not enough this week, we had a bit of a surprise this week. Um, yeah, if, if you're not in the loop on this, it's not like we've never had a baby at North Wake before. This is, uh, this is, this is little Oak Surprise Jackson. Um, Stephanie is our uh, children's director here, and she went in Thursday morning, I believe, thinking that she had an, uh, an infection of her urinary tract and uh, found out when she got there a little after seven that she was, in fact, pregnant. She did not know she was pregnant. I am not making this up. And um, within about two hours, she was holding a little boy, a healthy little boy named Oak, in her arms... Uh, with no prior knowledge of her pregnancy. Now, I, I've, I thought his middle name should have been Surprise. <laughs> Maybe Surprise, 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 Jackson, right? Um, others have suggested Miracle, which I resisted because I wasn't sure this was really a miracle. But then several ladies took me aside and explained, when you skip all the consequences of pregnancy <laughs> and have a two-hour labor, this is a miracle. And uh, so Miracle Jackson could be, could work as well. But as far as uh, when we visited them, they were doing really, really well. And uh, as you can imagine, a bit overwhelmed. And there will be some extraordinary opportunities for you to love on the Jacksons in the near future. Stay tuned. Um, God's been very kind to us this week. Let's pray and give him thanks. Father, we give you thanks. Um, You've been faithful to us as a people here in this particular place for 25 years, and um, you have protected us and grown us and been so very kind to us. We just give you thanks. And then for Little Oak to come in the world in this um, extraordinary way, this surprising way, just reminds us that your kindness is way better than we expect or desire or deserve. And we ask your favor on his life and upon his parents. Um, we, again, give you thanks. And now, Lord, may the word be to us all that it's supposed to be. Give us ears eager to hear and, and uh, feet quick to obey. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, it's probably seven or eight years ago, there was... Uh, a friend of ours who used to come and visit, uh, she was a lady, she served in, at that time in Afghanistan, and she would come back, and uh, she had some friends in our church at North Wake, and she would come back and visit with us from time to time, worship with us here in this room, um, spent the night on occasion at our house. Um, her name was Sid. She's in the middle there with two of her Afghan friends. And after a visit uh, here in the States, she returned to Kandahar to work amongst the women there. She worked on projects designed to help women and families generate income. She taught English at a local high school. Um, she taught embroidery lessons at a girls' school. She just shared the love of Christ with those people any way she could. But in 2008, Sid and her driver, Muhammad, uh, were kidnapped at gunpoint. And Sid, after six years now, it seems inevitable t 
to number her among the martyrs. She was never heard from again. Um, you know, Open Doors is an organization that keeps track of people's stories like SIDS, and they say that between 2012 and 2013, the number of Christian martyrs in the world doubled. And uh, it depends on how you, what a martyr is, if it's someone who, because of their Christian actions, is, is put to death. Um, 2013, they count over 2,100 Christians were killed because of their actions to following Jesus. If you broaden that out and just say any kind of, anyone who was killed because they're a Christian in, in, in name or in ethnicity or in culture... Um, that number jumps to nearly 100,000. Christians who died for their faith last year. Simply, those, simply because they were identified as Christians. Um, what, what, do we make, what are we supposed to make of this? Of Christians who are being martyred for their faith. For our faith. Okay. You know, it's, it's not a new thing. Um, in, in 1956, Jim Elliott and a handful of other missionaries were martyred in Ecuador while attempting to evangelize an unreached group of people there. In World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was martyred by the Nazis for his faith, as was Father Maximilian Kolb, a Roman Catholic priest, and countless others. You drop back in church history and you find in the 16th century, William Tyndale, famed for his work to render the Bible in English for us was strangled and his body burned at the stake for his faith. Um, to these we could add throughout history John Huss, Justin Martyr, all but one of the twelve apostles, it seems, uh, were martyred for their faith, and countless others, countless others throughout our history um, whose names history has completely forgotten. The book of Revelation alludes to martyrs on a handful of occasions. What are we supposed to make of this, this history, this legacy of martyrdom? That is ours, of good Christians who are killed for their faith. As we think about that today, we look at one who is often considered the first Christian martyr. His name is Stephen, and two weeks ago we met Stephen in Acts 6. Today we'll hear more from him in Acts 7, but remember back in Acts 6, he was numbered amongst those who were selected, handpicked, to care for widows in the daily distribution of food and, and resources. Um, in Acts chapter 6, at verse 5, it says that uh, what they said pleased the whole gathering in terms of selecting men to do this task, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. This is how we're introduced to him. He's a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And God began to use Stephen, if you remember, far beyond this important ministry of caring for widows, and we read just a couple verses later that Stephen was full of grace and power, and he was doing great wonders and signs amongst the people. And this, of course, put him on um, those who were opposed to Christ and his message, put him on their radar. And in verse 10, um, they began to debate with him, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And as a result of his debating with them, 
It says, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is where we pick up our story in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is facing his accusers. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. And then he does a curious thing in his defense. He tells a story. Uh, a long story. Um, Stephen's story that's told here, his sermon that he gives in response to this question is the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. And as a result, we're just going to skip across the surface of it together today. It'd be a great read later this afternoon for you to read it in its fullness. But his story is really a kind of condensed history of God's people, Israel. And it is a remarkable portrait of God. Later today, as you read over this sermon, just look for who God is shown to be in this sermon. You'll, you'll find things like this. This is the God you'll meet in Stephen's sermon. He's the God who gives power. He's the God of glory. He appears to men. He speaks and he guides. He is with us in our suffering. He rescues. He gives wisdom and favor with men. He keeps his promises. He sends rulers. He sees our oppression. He hears our cries. Yet he turns away from sin and gives the unrepentant over to worship false gods. He disciplines. He reveals. He drives out nation. He rules from heaven. He's the maker of all. Stephen's sermon is about this God and the history of his people. And when he tells the history, he drops into three main characters um, throughout Israel's history. The first is Abraham. Um, it says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Down in verse 5 it says, yet God gave him no inheritance in that land, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. So Stephen recounts a great promise given to Abraham. The promise of descendants of which he, he did not have even a child. And a land a land of their own. But he also recounts, and this is what I want you to notice, a great opposition to what God was doing. That God's people, as part of this journey, would be enslaved by the people of Egypt later on for 400 years. 
And also he writes about God's rescue of that suffering. He moves on from Abraham and he drops into another character. He drops into the life of Joseph. And Joseph too suffered opposition. This time it's by his own family, the patriarchs of Israel. Down in verses 9 and 10 it says, Those patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. They sold him into Egypt, into slavery. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Again, God, um, Joseph suffered opposition to serving God, and God rescued um, his people using Joseph, the very target of their evil betrayal, to be their agent of rescue. So he's looked at Abraham and the opposition to Abraham, Uh, Abraham's descendants, he's looked at Joseph and the opposition that came to him through his own family, the patriarchs of Israel. Now he moves on to Moses and to the captivity of God's people in Egypt. And he he tells of repeated rejection of Moses by his own people. It says, when Moses was 40 years old, in verse 23, it it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Moses now, remember, um, is is away from his people, and they are enslaved. He sees one of them being wronged, and he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And again, um, Moses' legacy is is one of being rejected as he tried to serve God by his own people. Verse 35 says, This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. If you drop down to verse 39 in Stephen's sermon, our fathers refused to obey Moses but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Stephen is recounting for us a history of rejection and opposition to God by his own people, one after another after another. He repeatedly refers to your forefathers and your fathers as those who rejected and opposed what God was doing. It's not, it's not a good family legacy for these leaders. Right? And Stephen drives this point home in the strongest of language at the end of his sermon. This is how he ends his sermon. I think he ends this way in part because he'll be interrupted. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. It's not a compliment to call the Jews uncircumcised, right? Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. 
So Stephen's sermon here is not so much a defense as it is an offense. He is not defending himself. He is going on the offensive, accusing his accusers of rejecting and opposing God's work. So how does that happen? How do good, religious, spiritual people find themselves opposing God? There's a clue maybe from another emphasis in his sermon, a section I skipped. Back in verse 46, he's talking about the temple. And he says in verse 46, um, those who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Solomon who built the temple for God. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand Make all these things. So it seems that the, the religious leaders who were accusing Stephen had missed the point of the temple. And the temple had almost become bigger than God so that God had to fit in the temple. The temple was not a pointer to God. When we studied Acts 6, Two weeks ago, I quoted John Piper in a way that helped us think about what's going on with the temple here. Let me read it to you again. He says, What these false witnesses against Stephen did not grasp at all was that the kind of destroying that Jesus was doing to the temple was a fulfilling of everything that God and Moses promised in the law. The forgiveness of sins, a personal priestly advocate with God, the presence and accessibility of His glory... Stephen was not against Moses and God. He was not against the temple and the customs. He was for their fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus destroyed the temple the way a homecoming from Saudi Arabia destroys the need for letters. He destroyed the temple the way the rising sun destroys the need for streetlights and headlights. He destroyed the temple the way a descending reality destroys its shadow. See, the temple and the law of Moses, the very things that they accuse Stephen of blaspheming, exist to point to Christ. Okay? They point us to Christ. And they missed what was the center of it all, the bullseye of all the history of their nation, which was the coming of the Messiah, the fulfillment of the law, the new temple. See, Jesus, as we saw a couple weeks ago, claimed to have fulfilled the law. He says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Revelation talks about Jesus as the new temple. In the heavenly city, John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. It's as though they're so focused on the law and the temple that they lost sight of the one that the law and the temple point to. They missed Jesus. And they wound up opposing God. If you miss Jesus, you miss what God is doing. If you miss Jesus, you will miss God. So if you're here this morning, and you're here as a pacifying spouse, right? Drug here by your spouse. Or you're here to get a coworker off your back who's been inviting you and inviting you and inviting you and you're here. This is really important. 
You can be a really good religious person. You can catch every you can catch church every time the door is open. You can serve faithfully. You can tote your Bible everywhere. But if you miss Jesus, you miss God. There's no other way to God than through faith in Jesus. You cannot do enough good things to find your own way to God. It's only by faith in Jesus' work on the cross, not your own, that you can know God. Now, those of us who have entered into the faith, who have trusted in Christ, we can lose track of the center too. Peripheral things can become more important to us than the center, who is Christ. It happens when winning the debate over finer points of doctrine matters more than whether or not we honor and represent Christ in that debate. It happens when we protect the way we do church, and that matters more than whether or not we honor Christ as the church. You know, I'm not going to get to be your pastor forever. Someday you're going to get a brand new whippersnapper pastor, okay? a young guy. He's going to change lots of things, okay? important things, you know, color of the carpet, time of the worship service, all those really crucial matters of the faith. Um, probably won't wear a sweater vest. He's going to change the way we do church. And you're going to be tempted to dig in and fight about how we do church. And you're going to dishonor the very reason we do church, which is to worship Jesus. See, all pastors and professors and your favorite Bible teachers are, are little pointers to Christ. They're just road signs along the way. Stephen's counter-accusation in this sermon couldn't have been any stronger. The religious leaders, his accusers, are the ones who violated the law's great purpose. It was they who missed the point of the temple. When they rejected Jesus, they opposed God. They were the ones who blasphemed, not him. Now, as you can imagine, this was not well received. Continues in verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Remember that name. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And here we have the account of the first of the Christian martyrs. And one of the things becomes blazingly clear as you read this story, this true account of Stephen's death. Christians are to die different. Okay? We die with a sure hope that, as Paul put it in Romans 8, 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
doesn't even compare. Even the life-ending suffering of being stoned to death. Being stoned, as you can imagine, was a horrid process. Um, S. Lewis Johnson describes it this way. He says that the custom of stoning was a very brutal custom. It was the custom for those who were the witnesses to appear and witness against the individual. And after that, they, after they had witnessed against the individual, they were the ones who were to cast the first stones. And when the decision was reached to stone as a result of the sin of blasphemy or other specific sins, the individual who had been charged and accused and convicted was taken out of the council to the place where he would be stoned. Usually it was a place that had a cliff or at least a large pit. And then about ten cubits from the pit, he would be asked if he would confess his sin. And he was assured that if he were to confess his sin, he would have a place in the world to come. In other words, he would be saved spiritually, even though he must die physically. And then when they came closer to the pit, he was stripped of his clothes, and someone pushed him into the pit. And he was turned over so that his face was up, and a large stone was taken and dropped on his heart. And if the individual died when the large boulder was dropped upon his heart, then nothing else was done. But if he was still living, then the whole congregation was required to stone him to death. And Stephen experienced, he says, the stoning to death. The fury of Stephen's accusers makes you think that they did not follow this careful process. He was drug out and they stoned him to death. I mean, he's not found laying on his back, interestingly. He is on his knees, which is the posture of prayer. Stephen is praying as he is stoned to death. And he says three Three amazing things in this process that we must not miss. They show us, as Paul would, would later say, that the sting of death has been removed. And instead, death bears three incredible mercies to Stephen, even as he is being stoned to death in these three sayings. The first one is in verse 55. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. See, death brings God into focus. We see it here for Stephen. He receives an amazing vision of the glory of God, of Jesus the Son, given to him by the Holy Spirit. Stephen is experiencing the whole trinity at work as he's dying. Death has a way of bringing God to the forefront. Not that we'll have a vision like Stephen necessarily. But death serves us by bringing God's center stage in our thinking. And our hope becomes real. Such that we die different. Okay? We don't die as those who have no hope. Listen to some of these last words from Christians throughout the ages. John Owen. He says, I am going to him whom my soul loveth, or rather who has loved me with an everlasting love, which is the sole ground of all my consolation. Alexander Hamilton said, I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a sinner. I look to him for mercy. 
Martin Luther's last words purportedly, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O God of truth. August Strindberg was a Swedish um, man who died in 1912. He died with a Bible clasped tightly to his chest saying, It is atoned for. Adoniram Judson, an American missionary to Burma, says, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. See, we, we are to die different. Death brings God into focus for us. Stephen saw Jesus. The heavens opened and the Son of Man, he said, standing at the right hand of God. His second saying is in verse 59. As they were stoning him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. See, death was not the end for Stephen. He knew he was going to join Jesus. Death is not the end for a follower of Jesus. It's the beginning. It's, the hope, it's hope experienced fully. It's promise kept. It is joining Jesus. It is entering his presence. The one who loves us such that he would give his life for us. Our maker, our sustainer, our savior, our Lord, our king. Death for the Christian is to enter the presence of Jesus. We see it in Stephen here. Stephen sees Jesus and he joins Jesus. And there's strong evidence here that Jesus is the very Son of God. Who else but God is going to receive the spirits of men? There's a third saying in verse 60. Falling to his knees. Again, the posture of prayer. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound familiar to you? The only else that prayed something like that when they were dying? See, this is the sentiment of Jesus on the cross. Luke 23 When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And just a few verses later, consider this. In verse 46, Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, at the moment of his death, Stephen sees Jesus, he joins Jesus, and he reflects Jesus. See, we don't just follow Christ in our life, we follow him in our death. Stephen reflects Jesus' confidence in the Father's love and care for him, even through death. He reflects Jesus' compassion and concern even for his murderers. See, when we die, we are still to be followers of Jesus. We ought to die full of faith and full of mercy for our enemies. We die different. Even the most tragic of deaths like Stephen's 
is redeemed in God's good and powerful hands. Look what happens next as we just sneak into chapter 8, a few verses. Saul approved of Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So the martyrdom of Stephen touches off a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem such that believers fled for their lives and were scattered throughout regions where the story of Jesus had not yet been taken. And the, the promise of Jesus is starting to come true. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it's happening here. This is a recurring theme um, in the Gospels and in Acts. Those who resort to violence to oppose the gospel end up furthering it. This was the result of Jesus' death and now Stephen's as well. Famously, there was a believer named Tertullian in 197 A.D. 197 A.D. He wrote a book called The Apology. And in it, he wrote to the Roman governor of his province refuting false charges being made against Christians and the Christian faith. And he observed that persecution was failing to destroy Christianity. And he wrote this famous line. He says, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. Your injustice is the proof that we are innocent. Therefore, God allows that we thus suffer. The oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. It's not that everywhere Christians suffer, the church flourishes. That, that's, not, that's not the case. Think about Iraq right now. In 2003, there are one and a half million Christians in Iraq. Now estimates are that there are as little as 200,000 Christians left in Iraq in 10 years. They've been scattered. But when they scatter, if they are faithful, they take the gospel with them and they preach the word and the gospel spreads. You know, here in Acts and elsewhere in history, we see God's redemptive power displayed even in the persecution of the church. Consider China. In 1949, when communist rule was solidified there, there were approximately a million Christians. Um, this week I saw one estimate that there are now 163 million Christians in China. Greatly persecuted over those decades. Persecution scatters the church often and the gospel spreads. Think about it. Think about your history lesson. How did, how did the gospel come to America, right? Spiritual pilgrims persecuted for their faith brought it here. So, what are we to make of the killing of Christians for their faith? People like Stephen and Huss and Tyndale and Bonhoeffer, and Jim Elliott, and our dear sister Sid. What do we make of their deaths? Several questions come to mind that we need to address. 
Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing when Christians are martyred for their faith? I would say it's an evil thing. It's an evil, however, that is redeemed for good by our God who is greater. Study the history of Christianity and you get glimpses of this. You see it in Acts. You see it in China. You see it in our country. Even in our sister Sid's case, something very extraordinary happened two days after she was abducted and likely murdered. Um, This is an actual picture of the gathering. 500 Muslim women gathered in her city to protest her abduction. This is unheard of and wrote a formal statement of protest to her captors and to the government officials of her abduction. What kind of seed was sown in Kandahar amongst these women and their families through Sid's great sacrifice? See, persecution is an evil thing, but it's an evil that's redeemed for good by our God who is greater. A second question that's raised is, how was Stephen able to do this? Okay. Uh, how do you face death this way with great faith and great mercy, even for his murderers? When the, this did not happen out of thin air. You remember who Stephen was. He lived a life of faith out of which a faithful death naturally flowed. Remember how he's described, a man of good reputation, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of grace and power. We could add, he's a man who had an extraordinary knowledge of the Scriptures. I mean, read his sermon. It's like, it just drips with Old Testament. Now, Jesus did make an extraordinary promise. In Mark 13, he says, when, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever's given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that that promise is incongruous with a godly life. I think a godly life is the foundation for that promise. Stephen lived a faithful death because he lived a life of faith. The other question that comes out of this, and it's the one that probably a number of you are thinking, will this be asked of me? Could what happened to Sid happen to me? And I I just want to say, hey, it could happen. Paul wrote this infamous verse to his protege in the faith, Timothy. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Um, It could happen to us. You know, and in a day where our beliefs are increasingly out of step with those of our culture, you know, it's no longer far-fetched to imagine that a pastor's sermons could be subpoenaed as evidence against him in our country. So, so live ready. 
Live ready. Live a life of faith that will position you to live a faithful, die a faithful death. Okay. Lives like Stephen, lives of service and sacrifice for others in the name of Jesus, full of the spirit and wisdom that comes from being immersed in the scriptures so that you know the story of God. You can tell it forwards and backwards. You read it every day. Live ready. It could happen. Fred Craddock helps us think about how it does happen for most of us. He's giving a talk and he says, uh, To give my life for Christ appears glorious, he said. To pour myself out for others to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, he says, I'll do it. I'm ready. Lord, I want to go out in a blaze of glory. He says, we think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table and saying, here's my life, Lord, I'm giving it all. He says, but the reality for most of us is that God sends us to the bank and has us cash in that $1,000 bill for quarters. And we go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. Listen to the neighbor kid's troubles instead of telling him to get lost. Go to a committee meeting. Give a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. Usually, he says, giving your life for Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love and faithfulness. 25 cents at a time. In some ways, he says, it'd be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It can be harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. This will be asked of you. This will be your sacrifice of service. I can guarantee that. Are you ready? Are you living ready for what God is going to ask of you? Would you bow with me in prayer, please?